Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I, I thought it might be a good time to um, just remind us all about adult immunizations as we start seeing more individuals uh, either face to face or still virtually. And obviously, this has um, uh, is my usual disclosure that doesn't represent the VA or USF, although I think they would agree with all of these comments. Um, I just want to start off with three case studies. Um, these are not meant to be answered now, but you will hopefully uh, we can discuss them at the end of the presentation. So the first one's a 38 year old lady who is uh, two months pregnant. She's an executive secretary at a real estate office. And before she became pregnant, she was diagnosed with type two diabetes. Uh, she has uh, had a tetanus shot about eight years ago. Um, but um, when she was tested, she doesn't have any evidence of immunity to measles, mumps, rubella, or varicella. So obviously, what vaccinations might we recommend with her? The next is a 52-year-old gentleman who is an account executive for an advertising agency. He unfortunately uh, uses alcohol to excess and unfortunately has some chronic liver disease. He has no other really significant medical conditions besides that. He had a tetanus booster about three years ago, and he says he never had, to his knowledge, measles, mumps, rubella, or chickenpox, and doesn't recall being vaccinated against those. So we'll discuss maybe what does he need. And the last is a 65-year-old lady who comes in for a routine office visit um, which is also a pre-Medicare physical. Uh, she had a documented case of chickenpox as a child. She does have evidence of immunity to rubella. Uh, Someone had checked that, and she's in apparently good health with no real significant comorbidities. So the first thing is just to make you aware, and you probably already are, uh, CDC and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, does an annual recommendation for both childhood um, and adult immunizations. So you'll see the 2022 coming out probably later January to sometimes early February, depending on how busy they are with other things. But I wanted just to include into here, I'm not going to go through all this, but it's um, discussing what vaccines that there are, the abbreviations for that, and the trade names, which I'm probably not going to use too much at all, uh, just so that you have that available if you're not clear and it's in the document. Probably the best part of the whole document is the way they present recommendations for adult immunizations. And I think you can see on um, this graphic that it's broken down by age groups at the top with the uh, vaccines over on the right-hand side. So you can see uh, what is in yellow or recommended vaccines who meet age requirements, uh, lack vaccination or evidence of past immunity. In the purple are recommended vaccines for adults with an additional risk factor or other indication. The blue is something I'll just briefly discuss is recommended vaccination based on what's called shared uh, clinical decision making. And what you see in gray is there's just not really any good recommendation to make. So you can see a lot of different vaccines um, and broken down by age groups, some certainly for some age groups and not so much for the other. 
the second graphic is also really helpful as well because it's looking at comorbidities uh, on the top and also looking at vaccines down the left-hand side. You see the same kind of thing there with the yellow uh, gradations and purple that we talked about in the blue. There's uh, only a couple with this one, but you also see two other colors on this. The the red one, which is not hard to or pretty hard to miss, I guess, of not recommended. And when you look at those, those are uh, live attenuated viral um, vaccines, which are not meant to be given to certain populations, including pregnant women, immunocompromised people. But that's excluding HIV uh, for the most part, except for um, as you can see with the live attenuated influenza vaccine. Um, so you can read across that, but uh, also MMR, varicella vaccine. Um, HPV vaccine is not really recommended during pregnancy. Uh, it's probably not going to be a, uh, an emergency to give it while someone's pregnant, but certainly after uh, delivery, that could be a consideration. And then you see precaution. Um, if you really needed to, you could give it, but if you could postpone it, it's probably not a bad idea. And that's again, the live attenuated influenza vaccine, as well as meningococcal B vaccine during pregnancy. If it was in an outbreak situation and somebody you know, um, could have been exposed or was in an area where that there's an increased incidence, it's a consideration, but otherwise it's probably best to wait um, until uh, the person's not pregnant again, uh, or in the other one um, with the other comorbidities. It just depends on the situation. Um, as always, there's an app for that. Uh, you can download it. It's from the Apple Store and also uh, for Androids as well. Uh, the caveat they have on the website is if you had previously downloaded it, make sure you have version 8.0.1 uh, for the 2021 schedules and footnotes. So if you have the old one, update it to that. Um, I thought this is a great graphic. It's been used uh, for many years now, and I never could figure out where it came from because it's been in different people's presentations until I spent about an hour finally tracking it down. Uh, this is older data. This is uh, 2007 CDC data. And a gentleman by the name of Leon Ferrant, who was a graphic artist, put this together, which I thought is very compelling. Um, he does lots of other, I mean, you can look up the name and see other things that he has done uh, being a graphic artist, but it just uh, shows you with the data that now is, you know, way over almost 15 years old, but um, getting uh, the idea across that pre-vaccination, we had lots of problems and post-vaccination with the different vaccines that are out there made significant impacts. Um, and it's really interesting to see where we are in society today with just talking about the impact of one vaccine. And here you see people lined up with, you know, their arms exposed, a celebrity there that I think you probably would recognize in the middle getting uh, his vaccination, although I'm not, I can't remember which one he was getting. And the two pictures at the bottom is what I was given when I was a kid and there's sugar cubes which had a dot on them. It was a pinkish dot and that was oral polio vaccine. So, you know, we had vaccinations, people you know, were um, engaged with this and it wasn't everyone, but the vast majority of people seemed to be proponents of trying to eliminate some of these diseases because they had seen 
the individuals uh, who had acquired that and some of the long-term effects that one can see, especially with polio and um, some of the other things that we've, uh, have, well, one that we've eliminated and that was smallpox. Um, so the first one, uh, disease to consider is pneumococcal disease. Most of you know all about this. There's uh, way over 90 serotypes that have been identified. Some of these are more active causing human disease than others are. And the ones that we worry about, we certainly get concerned about pneumococcal pneumonia, but we get concerned when it gets outside the lungs and gets into the bloodstream. Uh, and the term for that is invasive disease, where then it, once it gets into the bloodstream, it can certainly go elsewhere, including into the brain and CSF and cause meningitis. Uh, the, this is uh, back in 2010. The CDC had made recommendations in the MMWR that you see referenced and actually increased uh, by two things, what would be included into recommendations to give pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine that you see uh, abbreviated PPV, it should be PPSV23. Um, I'm just gonna call this 23 valent because you know the conjugate vaccine is a 13 valent. So for the sake of discussion today, we'll talk about 23 valent and then the conjugate vaccine is 13 valent. So two additions with this, uh, when they were talking about vaccinating people under the ages of 19 through 64, you see a lot of comorbid diseases, which had been around with the early recommendations for um, 23-valent vaccinations. But on this one, they added asthma and cigarette smoking. So that was where that we started you know, broadening to some degree the concern of making sure these people who had uh, certain issues with their lung asthmatics or people that smoke cigarettes were also included for consideration of giving pneumococcal vaccine. Um, it's become a little bit more convoluted when you start looking at recommendations, uh, including people with relatively, if you will, mild comorbidities and people with very significant comorbidities. And that's why you see um, these two different graphics here. The one on the top is looking at people who have a little bit milder comorbidities. <clears throat> you see them in the red box as um, heart, lung disease, diabetes, alcoholism, uh, chronic liver disease, and it also includes people who smoke. With this one, uh, and this is uh, from it for individuals between the ages of 19 through 64, to start out with 23-valent vaccine, wait at least a year, and give 13-valent vaccine. Um, below the age of 65 and then wait a year or after that they turn 65 and that's when you give their second dose of 23-valent uh, vaccine. Um, and so that's outlined there for you and I'm, on the next slide I'll show you uh, the whole graphic. Uh, you can see where it's obtained from from CDC and if you like um, I've downloaded the whole PDF and I can send it to you. Um, I don't have it on this computer, but I do on my desktop. It's a little bit more complicated though when you look at people who have a lot more significant immune suppression. So it's talking about people with CSF leaks, cochlear implants, um, diseases that involve the spleen like sickle cell disease, uh, congenital acquired asplenia, um, congenital acquired immune deficiencies, HIV disease, especially poorly controlled HIV, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Uh, and you see the other things, renal disease, um, malignancies are over on this side, and iatrogenic immune suppression. So with this, it's a little bit more robust with the vaccination starting out again um, under the age of 65 with 13 valent, then waiting eight weeks and giving 23 valent vaccine, then waiting five years, giving another 23 valent vaccine, and then waiting another five years or until that they turn age 65 and uh, to give their last dose. Once they get 65, they don't need any more doses of 23 valent. Now, this is uh, only one page out of, as you can see, uh, a, a pretty complicated <clears throat> PDF that CDC had put together. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. The, um, the address you can see is at the bottom of the, the first, maybe you can see it with the pointer, um, but it's uh, cdc.gov front slash pneumococcal front slash vaccination.html. It is a single PDF with these four pages. And it's something you probably should go through when you're thinking about boards or even just with the recommendations that we make as ID physicians about, you know, who needs what vaccine and especially with this one because it's a little bit more complicated depending on the comorbidities. Um, I made reference to this concept of shared clinical decision making and part of that was with pneumococcal disease, but the four things that now have this um, annotation is meningococcal, uh, especially uh, meninge B vaccination for adolescent and young adults between the ages of 16 and 23, uh, HPV vaccine for older individuals uh, 27 through 45, giving 13-valent um, pneumococcal vaccine for individuals 65 years and older who don't have an immune compromising condition, CSF leak or cochlear implant, and hepatitis B vaccine for people over the age of 65. It's, it's, there's just not strong recommendations with all of those HPV. Those individuals in that age are a little less likely to actually acquire HPV in those ages. Although it is something that could happen, uh, we know, and just to mention a little briefly, uh, HPV towards the end, but it certainly is an extremely effective vaccine and not only helping prevent uh, genital dysplasias, uh, anal dysplasias in men, um, and also head and neck dysplasias and cancers associated with HPV. Uh, the chance of people acquiring hepatitis B is significantly less above age 65, but there are uh, some complications um, that you might see. Sorry. Um, I happen to be in a room where I have a phone, an, an honest to God landline. Um, I'll talk through it. So, you know, if you feel that it, you know, they're interested and you're thinking it's okay, you certainly can give people, you know, this vaccine. I can't get it to stop. We're okay. It's unplugged. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Never had that happen before. Uh, so if if you think it's a good idea and they're interested, that's the shared clinical decision making. So you know it's up to you whether you want to give the vaccine or not. But the main concern with this is, well, will someone pay for it? And the answer is actually yes. 
because of uh, ACA and that in that it states that if it's an ACIP recommended uh, vaccination and it's in the immune schedules that you saw earlier, that uh, generally they're required to be covered without copay, coinsurance, or deductibles. So that doesn't mean it always happens that way, but it's supposed to. Uh, moving on to uh, just mention about influenza. Um, before uh, the year 2009, what you would see is um, approximately 36,000 influenza-associated deaths, somewhere 32, 36,000. Uh, reported and that usually was a, a, a guesstimate from CDC because their tracking mechanisms for that were not robust. Uh, who took most of the brunt of those were 65-year-old individuals and other people with significant comorbidities, but generally older people. And um, it, this was a, a an ongoing issue, but something changed obviously since the title says pre-2009. So what happened in 2009? we had a surprise and it was really pretty humbling because it was completely different than flu as we had known it. Usually it comes out of Asia because uh, of mixing in uh, some of the farms that they have between pigs, horses, birds, etc. Uh, so we get new strains coming in. Uh, the mortality generally is pretty significant, especially in older populations, as you see. But what happened in 2009 was this didn't happen coming out of Asia generally in the fall as it starts moving around the northern hemisphere. It came out of Mexico in April of that year. It was not a new strain. It was an H1N1. <clears throat> the mortality was actually fairly low, and it targeted a completely different group of people as far as um, the ones acquiring it and the mortality was young individuals, more obese individuals and pregnant women. Um, interestingly enough, the elderly did much better with this one than they normally would have. Uh, so for that year, and the other thing that was really interesting was this occurred in 2009. So people were able to use the internet in some very ingenious ways of looking at Facebook and Twitter and all kinds of different mechanisms to find out where were infections happening, people discussing what was going on in communities or their own personal infections. So we had probably the best data that we've ever had so far, that there were about 60 million infections, 270,000 hospitalizations, and approximately 13,000 deaths. It was a pandemic, by the way. Uh, so should we be concerned about influenza? <clears throat> Speaking to this crowd, I think the answer is obviously yes. And part of it isn't, <clears throat> excuse me, just the respiratory uh, compromise that we have from this and some of the complications even from that. But it, it can in people cause neurologic issues such as encephalopathy, uh, um, encephalitis, uh, some movement disorders and uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Other people that get this 68% have a bad outcome and other people that have bad encephalitis, uh, about 16% of those people uh, can die. The interesting thing is other people that get this, generally nobody's been vaccinated. The other uh, thing we need to worry about is if you get the flu, now you have lung inflammation, and we know that there's certainly a significant potential occurrence of post-flu bacterial pneumonia with the most common actors being strep pneumo and staph aureus. So if you think about it, if you 
vaccinate somebody against influenza and decrease the chance they're going to have symptomatic disease. Um, obviously, they can still get the flu, just a milder form of it. But if you could prevent that and you had them vaccinated against strep pneumo, you significantly decrease the chance that they're going to have complications from um, having influenza, perhaps not having it at all, and decreasing the chance they'll have at least one form of post-flu pneumonia. Uh, it's been interesting to watch over the last couple of years what's happened with the flu, and this is just a graphic from 2017-2018, and you see in this graphic the two different uh, flu A's and flu B's that circulated around. You see that there was um, two different uh, influenza A's. There was an H1N1 and H3N2 with different colors. The H3N2 was the prominent one that year, and the darker orange, um, kind of more reddish. And then the different ones for the B lineage, uh, the, um, the Victoria lineage was the lighter green one. And you see that they peak at different times. So as we went through influenza season, we started out seeing more um, influenza A and then towards the end of it, more influenza B. And that's why it's important that the vaccines cover for um, both of these types of influenza. Uh, from going on through 2019, 2020, um, so starting to get into COVID season, if you will, we saw that in some areas there was a significant uptake in influenza vaccine and in parts of the South, um, not so much, unfortunately. And then last year, uh, this was September 27th through March 6th. These are just the number of positives, so this is you know, crude numbers. Um, but you didn't see much influenza and then it just pretty much went away. And I've given you a hint as to one of the big reasons that it did, because you saw that a lot of people weren't really getting vaccinated. When we started using masks, we did social distancing. And with you know using influenza vaccination, we, we really made it a really rare disease for that time period. Other vaccines that we have, uh, there is one that's alive attenuated. As you know, the intranasal spray, it's approved for individuals age two through 49 who are healthy and certainly ones that are not pregnant, as we mentioned before. But there are some contraindications to using this. Um, people who have asthma that have allergies to aspirin and salicylates, um, if they're immunocompromised, cochlear implants, and all those other things we kind of talked about. And sometimes people would um, have some leftover Tamiflu and decide that, oh, well, maybe I should just take that and prophylax myself until I can get, you know, this flu nasal spray. That's a pretty much a contraindication because you're going to decrease the efficacy of this live attenuated vaccine. So uh, that would be a contraindication. Um, the inactivated subunit vaccines now have the diagnosis, or, or the, I'm sorry, the delineation of this IIV or inactivated influenza vaccine. Um, most of these, but not all, are egg-derived. Uh, they are given as an intramuscular injection, and they're either a split virus or a purified surface antigen uh, or a recombinant, as um, you probably have seen. Uh, this is what currently is being used, and some of you probably already had your flu vaccination. So um, if it was an egg-based flu vaccine, then this is what was included into it uh, as far as an H1N1 and H3N2s. And the Bs were um, pretty similar to what we had last year. There is a difference if you're looking at either a cell-based 
uh, a human diploid cell based or a recombinant based influenza vaccine that the um, the H1N1 is a little different, but it, the others are the same. So really not that much of a change. Uh, just to touch on, you know, as we mentioned about who did worse with influenza and tended to be older people, 65 and older. Um, there was a really nice paper uh, several years ago now in JID, and it was in 20, uh, was in 2017. I did annotate it, and it was looking at assessing frailty and people when we're uh, vaccinating and um, following them from influenza. And as you can imagine, there was a really nice editorial that was written by Kathy Newsel and her colleague Wilbur Chen, that uh, are the Center of Vaccine Development at University of Maryland that the vaccine efficacy among non-frail older individuals wasn't actually too bad. It was about 77.6%. But if they developed conditions that caused their um, well-being to decline and it became more frail, it went down. Um, interestingly as well, when they looked at the vaccine efficacy against influenza for hospitalization, it was about 58% overall uh, with confidence intervals you see being fairly close. And the vaccine efficacy, just by being frail, was about the same as being in a hospital. Um, so frailty is associated with less vaccine efficacy. So um, it's not that it shouldn't be given, obviously, to people that are frail, but I think our expectations may be a little lower um, as the frailty index increases. Um, and just to let you know, there are some newer influenza vaccines. Some are already in pipeline, some are being planned. Um, this one, as you see, was um, an article, a news article that came out from uh, April of last year. And this one's interesting because, as you note on the top, the things that change, and this is comparing 1918 influenza um, to 2009. And you see most of these hemagglutin, I'm sorry, um, yes, hemagglutin uh, heads on, uh, or the top part, if you will, the head, area that's where all the changes are conferring differences why we need vaccines every year because of the mutations but where you see really rare from 1918 i think there's only about six or eight mutations from um, 1918 through 2009 so the newer vaccines are actually also targeting stem so you're getting um, antibodies that's going to hopefully attach to both of these areas and increase the response to the vaccine. So I think that's really interesting. Um, you see it highlighted the uh, one of the first ones that went into trials. There are other ones that are going into trials. And because of some of the advances with vaccines and different platforms, including mRNA and adenovectored virus and some other really intriguing, um, if you will, almost like a multiplex uh, of trying to vaccinate for several different things with one vaccine, you're going to see influenza in that mix as well. So it's going to be exciting times over the next three to five years. Uh, whooping cough, this is a huge problem for us uh, early in the 1900s. And as you see, when the first vaccine came out, that was the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. It was using wholesale pertussis. Um, it was extremely effective. And you see the numbers as we started vaccinating more and more people dramatically decreased. And um, then people would give a booster after a period of time, generally around 10 years or so. And that was the DTAP. But the problem is that the big P in there was cellular pertussis and the local site reactions were really bad. 
um, people made comments that they would rather saw their arm off than to get the vaccine or something because it just was really uh, difficult to um, to to take vaccine because of the local site reactions. That's why you saw the changes to acellular pertussis vaccines, which were a lot more tolerable. Um, and I don't know if any of you have had uh, Tdap, but it's really pretty benign for the most part. But once we started going, uh, as you see, in around 2004, 2005, to using Tdap, we've seen some bad things occurring, and that's what the blown up section is up here. We're seeing more and more uh, issues with breakthroughs uh, from that. Uh, just to remind you that um, the initial vaccination is DTAP, and as for young children, as you see listed, two months to, uh, two months to six years. Uh, with the recommended schedule in there, and then Tdap uh, also. With the one that we don't want to forget about, which is on the bottom here, is pregnant women, preferentially given between weeks 27 through 36. And then TD with a booster about every 10 years, although there are some data to suggest that the efficacy can last certainly longer than 10 years, but that's still the recommendation. Although there's some caveats even with that, um, we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, what's included in the vaccine, and you see the pertussis antigens, um, one of the ones I've outlined for you here is pertactin, and there is certainly between the two um, larger actors with these two vaccines in the United States with um, Adacel and Boostrix by Sanofi and GSK. Um, they're pretty close in the amount of pertactin, so another um, bacterial surface antigen where that you can have antibody attachment. Uh, and activity. Um, so the recommendations for this are um, uh, after that you've give Tdap to continue to give either TD or Tdap for routine boosters every 10 years. And at this point, most people feel like it probably doesn't make any difference in giving Tdap is, is fine. Um, if you needed to give a Tdap, if there was an outbreak going on or, or you needed to be around a young child and you're concerned, uh, even if you had TD a day ago, you could go ahead and give it the next day. Uh, there hasn't been significant issues with that. Um, and as we talked about, you know, with trying to give it people close contact of infants less than 12, uh, especially healthcare workers who are going to be in contact with um, infants, so, you know, NICU workers, et cetera, and we, as we mentioned, pregnant women. Um, but there are issues even with pertussis vaccine. So um, in this study that was uh, from 2016, Canadian-based study, when they looked at uh, pertussis vaccine and the durability, it seemed to lose potency fairly rapidly. And so generally most of the efficacy was lost with uh, pertussis around year four and five. So this has caused a lot of problems in that, you know, what do we do about this? And there have been articles about do we need to do something else or do we just, you know, vaccinate more frequently, which is pretty much what we've been doing. Do we need another type of vaccine? Should we go back to cellular pertussis and get a longer durability and see if we can manage people with the local site reaction um, issues that no one likes? Um, there's not a consensus yet on what to do. Plus, there's also these um, issues that come up with Bordetella pertussis. Um, this is an outbreak a few years ago now that was reported in um, emerging infectious diseases where they're having outbreaks, which they've had some over the years in Australia. 
And it just so happened that the one that's noted there, starting in 2008, that about 30% of the bordetella pertussis isolates didn't have protactin. So that's one way of evading, if you will, a vaccine was you lose a target. And that's not an uncommon thing that happens with different uh, either viruses or bacteria. They either change the target or they lose the target so that the vaccines uh, or other compounds are not as effective. Um, I don't think there's any confusion in knowing what this guy has. If there is, I would direct your attention to the top of the slides because this is so classic. This is the typical case of herpes zoster shingles. It's definitely these group vesicles on an erythematous base and a dermatomal distribution on one side. I mean, if you saw that, you really don't need any testing or anything. Uh, it's so suggestive of shingles that that's probably what it is, and that is what it is. Um, it, we do get concerned when it gets on the face because of some of the things that it can portend. It can portend um, a wide variety of things, including eye issues, um, involving not only the cornea, but um, extraocular muscle movement, and even getting into an encephalomyelitis from that. Um, the one on the right was a patient that I saw actually when I was an ID fellow <clears throat> who ended up having small cell of the lung and got zoster. Um, and um, it was interesting because just half of his hard palate had lesions and they were ulcerative lesions, not so much like you saw on the skin. Why do we need to be concerned about it? Um, well, there's a wide variety of things that both uh, chickenpox and zoster are associated uh, in an increased um, episodes of people manifesting a stroke within six months of the rash. Most of it, as you can imagine, is earlier on after having these. And that risk is somewhere between 1.6 to four times higher, depending on who you read. Um, the worst thing that we worry about is uh, herpes zoster ophthalmicus because obviously it's right in the face and we do get worried about having CNS events from that, as I mentioned. Um, if you treat people rapidly, uh, definitely within the first 72 hours uh, after having a, a thought or a clear diagnosis of herpes zoster, you can decrease this significantly. So uh, earlier diagnosis and treatment definitely within 72 hours of, of onset of the rash is, um, is preferred if possible. Um, and there is also some papers looking at the issue of MI being transiently increased after exposure to uh, or the acquisition or remanifestation of varicella zoster as far as shingles goes uh, for about three months period of time. Um, this was also the other thing, and this is what, besides those issues, um, this whole issue of postherpetic neuralgia, that was uh, something that was noted, and, and who put this whole thing together, chicken pox and shingles, was Edgar Hope Simpson, who was a primary care physician in the UK. Um, he was also the first one that happened to notice the issues with postherpetic neuralgia being associated with herpes zoster. And we see that being more of an issue realistically starting about age 50, but really taking off age 60 and above in people who um, at this point haven't been vaccinated and have an occurrence of herpes zoster. Um, I had the pleasure of being part of that first uh, investigation with a live attenuated ochre strain, same as you use for chicken pox, trying to prevent herpes zoster. 
it was it was interesting. It was a great study to be in. We learned a lot of things about it. It was live attenuated, so it had to stay frozen. That was a big issue in itself. It had to stay within certain temperatures to stay viable. It had to be used within 30 minutes after you reconstituted it. Um, so there's a, a lot of hurdles in using it. Um, it was a single dose and it was given sub Q, which is also helpful. And um, the, the thing about it was that, you know, we learned a lot about it. And we also learned from the subset studies that I got to participate in that didn't last real long. After about five years post-vaccination, you, you lost a lot of the immunity and by seven to eight years, it was gone. So the, the, uh, studies we're on with different types of vaccines and that's what we have at this point is not a live attenuated but a recombinant zoster vaccine that most of you know by the brand name of shingrix um, it's looking at the glycoprotein e surface uh, protein from vzv and a, at that point a brand new adjuvant that was really potent and for those of you who've had this vaccine you know it's pretty potent um, it, it may not be quite as bad as getting some of the mRNA COVID vaccines, but it, it can certainly cause not only local site reaction, but you know some mild to moderate systemic reactions in some people. Differences are that um, it has to be given as an IM vaccination and it requires two. You get at time zero, your first one, and then somewhere between two to six months later, optimally, uh, to get uh, the best immunity, obviously. Uh, you don't have to freeze it. It's after reconstitution. You can refrigerate it. So if something would happen and you might get delayed, you're, you know, the person was coming in just for this, you'd already admixed it, but you're going to be delayed with some other healthcare issues. You can put it in a refrigerator and it's stable for up to six hours after reconstitution. Um, FDA reviewed it. ACIP made the um, below recommendations. So it was it had been the vaccine du jour. And um, as a matter of fact, that's why that you don't see uh, Zostavax or the live attenuated anymore was um, it just stopped being produced and what was around ran into expiry in November, or I'm sorry, in um, October of this year. Um, it's very effective when they compared it to the blue bars that you see with different live attenuated, um, looking at age groups 50 through 59, 60 through 69, and 70 plus, the vaccine efficacy was amazing. I mean, at 97%, and as you get a little older, it dropped oh so bad <laughs> to 91%. So not much of a drop. Um, the ongoing issues are going to be durability with this. It hasn't been out that long. As you can see, this was presented in 2017. So as time goes along, we'll get better data with durability of this as a shingles vaccine to prevent those things we mentioned before. Um, this is almost going to be superfluous since you can't get live attenuated, but this is looking at when can you give it after giving the uh, Zoster virus live or ZVL. Uh, and not to read through all of this, but basically nobody knew and the expert opinion best guess was, well, don't give it any more frequent than two months after they got ZBL. Just wait at least two months and then you can give it. So this probably by the next time I do this talk, this I'll take this slide out because it'll be uh, superfluous. Um, what about immune compromised individuals? It certainly was indicated in the um, 
the registration trials, of, uh, including people with low-dose immune suppression, the general thing that's in most of these, less than 20 milligram a day of prednisone for short periods of time, um, and not worrying so much about inhaled or topical, um, but persons anticipating immune suppression get this before they get immune suppressed. Um, although there's been no um, direct remarks from ACIP about uh, who can you use it in and their comments, they don't really say you can't give it to people who are immune compromised, but the efficacy is unclear at that point. So you could give it, we just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, moving on to mumps, we've seen mumps out of giving, you know, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella. The one that actually has the lowest efficacy is mumps vaccine. And that's why, you know, this made big news back in 2014, you know, in the NHL with some of the players getting mumps and who would have thought. Um, this is actually some of the more recent data that I could find. I couldn't find a bar graph, but uh, for going into January 2020, um, we did have a few cases of mumps, and there really wasn't a whole lot going on. And then, you know, counting some of these fell second and third, if you will, to COVID. Um, so why do mumps vaccinate persons get mumps? Because as I mentioned, it's probably the least effective of the vaccines, although it's pretty good if you get two doses. Overall, about 88% uh, effective in preventing mumps but that is a range depending on that person's uh, immunity, their underlying immune efficacy. And one dose is better than none, but um, not the best. So two is recommended. Um, but we know somewhere between 10 to 20% of people who got two doses of MMR might still be susceptible enough uh, to sustain an occasional mumps outbreak. So if an outbreak is noted in an uh, in a community, one of the recommendations is um, that, you know, number one, the problem is going to be that this has a long incubation period, so it may take you a while to figure that out. And then, as you see, actually at the bottom dose of this, to give a third dose of MMR, which should boost their immunity uh, as best as we can tell by at least a year, although long-term durability of giving that third dose may not be that long. Uh, and part of it comes down to what's in the vaccine and what's out in the real world. What's circulating in the United States since 2006 generally has been genotype G of uh, mumps vaccine, or I'm sorry, of mumps, but the vaccine is manufactured using a genotype A. So although you do get neutralizing antibody uh, against genotype G since you know, uh, that's what's out there. But it's it's not as good as if the vaccine had uh, was directed at genotype G. So you're getting some cross neutralization from that. Um, and people are looking at, you know, is there a better way to do this too? Um, measles, not to say too much about it, but most of this is from people who are unvaccinated because the vaccine efficacy is really good. About 95 to 98% of people who get two doses of MMR um, and so that's something else, although when you start looking at all these different viral infections uh, during COVID and masks and social distancing and no travel and everything being locked down, it was really, really uncommon. Um, as a matter of fact, this was looking through December 31st of last year, and there was 13 total cases of measles reported that year because we do get really concerned about measles, one of the most infectious viral um, infections that, that we have out. Um, 
to mention meningococcal vaccine, the uh, MEN-ACWY vaccine, you know, the recommendations are two doses uh, somewhere between the ages of eight, I'm sorry, of 11 through 18. First dose should be between the ages of uh, 11 and 12. We get worried about people who have uh, dysfunctional or no spleen, obviously including sickle cell disease, HIV, and people that have persistent complement component deficiencies or are on a complement inhibitor, such as ecluzumab and uh, rebelizumab. Uh, and even um, with some of those, giving meningococcal vaccine may not be enough because you're just not getting a good B cell response from some of these things, a complement response, that you may have to put them on penicillin prophylaxis. Um, so it's a two-dose series that are at least eight weeks apart and then revaccinate every five years at, while they still have a risk. So if they have no spleen, that's going to be about every five years lifelong. Um, if, and I, I forgot to mention, if they're going to be that, it's probably not a bad idea to consider giving them an angiococcal B vaccine as well, which we'll mention in just a second. Uh, travel to hyperendemic areas, you know, the meningococcal belt and um, sub-Saharan Africa. If you're going to go there, you might want to consider it. And also microbiologists who might get exposed to Neisseria meningitidis has been recommended to give a dose and revaccinate every five years. Uh, college students, residential areas, you know, people who are grouped together, military recruits uh, should get one dose of um, meningococcal vaccine, AC, ACWY. And the newer ones, as I mentioned, uh, not so new now, but serogroup B to the MEN-B, there's uh, two different ones, as you know. Um, MEN-B4C is two dose, and MEN-B-FHBP is three dose. They cannot be interchanged. Once you start with one, you have to finish with that one. Um, a lot of people certainly get interested in two dose versus three dose. Um, it's not something to consider uh, unless there's an absolute emergency, but um, it's best to delay until people aren't pregnant if they are pregnant. And again, through uh, ages of 16 through 23, just manage B, it's a shared clinical decision making depending on what the perceived risks are. Um, I want to just mention to you on hepatitis B vaccine, um, the first vaccine, which we've probably all forgotten about except me because I'm older than dirt. Um, it was the original one, which was Heptavax B. That was a, at that time, the company was Merck Sharp and Dome. It was approved in November of 81 and actually became available in 1982, which is when I received uh, the first of three doses of this. And I, I just want to point out to you that you see, you know, it says surface antigen. Well, it says surface antigen three different areas along and through here. Remember, there's a large surface protein that's a large if you will surface antigen a medium-sized and a small surface antigen and what was occurring with this vaccine was interesting and as you can imagine a little concerning since this is in 1981 to 82 because what they did was that they found people who had chronic active uh, hepatitis b from uh, iv drug users and men who were sexually active with men who also had this. And um, they basically took their plasma and purified surface antigen. And they did that with what you see here. And it's hard to find this anymore. Some of it I remembered, but I had to look up a couple of things. They uh, digested it with pepsin at a pH of two, 
um, and it unfolded in an eight molar urea solution that then they followed it with renaturation, uh, used gel filtration, and then treated it with formalin at pretty high concentrations, and they diluted it, they absorbed it on the alum. And of course, at that time, everything was preserved with uh, thimerosal. Um, and that's what you see in the bottom picture from a uh, an EM was these pictures of surface antigen that you see, and that's what you got. You basically got surface antigen, um, which is what you're getting with the others, although by a different way now, we're using recombinant vaccines. So this was actually a great vaccine. Um, my titers had held up for decades, but you can imagine what the concern was. And that's one of the big concerns. It was 1982, and what do we have that just came out then? As all of you know, was we didn't call it that at that point, was HIV. So people were very reticent to get this because of the concern that how do you know you killed everything that's in these people? Um, and that um, people just refused to take it. So that's where they came up with the first recombinant hepatitis vaccine, which was Recombivax, that was a Merck product, where that they inserted surface antigen genes into yeast. And then the second one was a GSK one, as you probably know, as Endrix um, B, which used a uh, baculovirus and doing the same thing, inserting uh, surface antigen gene and baculovirus. Both of those made surface antigen. Um, there was, unless you're highly allergic to um, yeast, then that was not going to be a problem for you. And the other was uh, an insect uh, virus, the baculovirus, so not an issue for, for humans. Uh, of some of the newer vaccines that we have now, uh, you've heard about Heplosave, which was a yeast-derived uh, vaccine. Again, it's a recombinant vaccine, but interestingly enough, it has a novel, and you see the whole list of it, uh, the CPGODN uh, adjuvant, that binds to toll-like receptor 9 and stimulates a really good immune reaction. So this was one that was meant to give much higher uh, protective titers. It's a two-dose series as opposed to three, so you give it at zero in one month, so you can really accelerate this, and it's been licensed for people uh, 18 and over. The outcomes look pretty good, not to go through all the studies, but when you looked at it compared against Endurix B, that the protective um, levels with uh, surface antibody was uh, between 90 to 100 um, percent and the Heplosave group as compared to 70.5 uh, to 90 plus percent with Endurix B. So pretty comparable, um, a quicker series to do and might have some benefits in certain populations. But the new kid on the block now is this interesting one that's just been um, announced, I'm not sure if it's even out for distribution at this point, but Cybivac, which is a tri-antigenic recombinant uh, vaccine that contains all three of the surface antigen components, the small, medium, and large. So you're definitely getting all those, whereas the others may only give you one. And it looks like that, um, you know, from the data, that it gives you pretty high levels of antibody. It is a three-dose vaccine given at zero, one, and six months. And when you looked at, when they were looking at antibodies of people three months and seven months after just their uh, second and third vaccines were pretty significant from this data. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this and, you know, as the recommendations come out of, for consideration of where, where maybe this would be useful. And of course, how much is it going to cost? Because I don't know. 
Uh, just to mention to you, hepatitis A, and we worry a lot about this for a wide variety of things of homeless individuals, drug use, foodborne, which is a big problem for you know some of us. Um, anybody with chronic liver disease and endemic areas where there's hepatitis A, or uh, obviously traveling to any of those paces of high prevalence. And it's an old map, as you can see from Medscape a while back, just looking at higher prevalence areas. Um, one caveat to remember that you can, if you were in an area and you thought you got exposed to hepatitis A, let's say that you know, you're in a group and two people had the you know, acute hepatitis A diagnosed, you can get vaccine and there is an, um, um, an immunoglobulin that you can receive for this, but if you, you have two weeks kind of like hepatitis B, to get vaccine. And it can be either one of the two vaccines you see at the top, either the uh, GSK or the Merck one. The one you cannot use, it's not approved for post-exposure prophylaxis, is Twinrix. Um, just because um, of the dosing for that, and uh, it's not been really evaluated. So it is not recommended to use Twinrix, um, both A and B vaccine for post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, finishing up here um, with the HPV vaccine, the nine valent, the most recent one. And again, just to mention to you that uh, it, you can give this to people um, up through age 26 in both men and women. They did harmonize the age. Men used to be a little lower than that. And uh, to prevent, especially in men, uh, HPV type 6 and 11, which are the major causes of external genital warts, um, but in both men and women for that. And also in men for the uh, prevention of anal dysplasia carcinoma, and also this, so much the same in women, and also uh, with newer information looking at the prevention of head and neck cancers due to HPV. Um, so, you know, what about doing catch-up? Um, between people older than that, and I've seen a few that people were interested in that. They were in a monogamous relationship, um, and they were in that for years, and then and they you know had no other sexual activity on either side. But then they decided to end that relationship and seek something else out. But they wanted to be protected against HPV, but they were over the age of 26. So essentially, they were going to have to pay for it themselves. Although now it's part of the shared decision making. Although as people get older, they tend you know, uh, to have already been exposed to HPV. So again, it's talking about the pros and the cons about getting it and um, for having the shared decision-making um, tool now that's available so that you could give it and it should hopefully be covered by uh, insurance. The only thing I'll say without going into a whole hour talk on it is that these are extremely effective vaccines, especially the nine valent. They're still, very much not optimally used, especially in the United States. We go back to what we started out with to end the hour. This is our first case. Remember, she, this lady's 38 years old. She's two months pregnant, um, and she was diagnosed with diabetes before she became pregnant. Uh, she had a tetanus shot about eight years ago and doesn't have any immunity to measles, mumps, rubella, or varicella. So should she get Tdap? What do you think? Yes. Excellent. Yes. And especially if possible at age 27 through 36. What about MMR? Nope. It depends on your malpractice coverage. 
kidding. No, you don't want to do that. It's a live <laughs> virus vaccine. Um, so it is contraindicated. Please don't do that. Uh, what about varicella? Issue. No. no. Yeah, it's a live virus vaccine. So those are out. Uh, influenza? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, and she's pregnant and inactivated only, even though she's in an age where she could get live attenuated nasal spray. Just don't do it. How about pneumococcal disease, a pneumococcal vaccine? Yeah, because she's diabetic. Remember, that's one of those not quite so bad. Um, so she could get 23-valent vaccine. Um, what about hepatitis A? No, not unless that there was a really good reason. I mean, you need a good history for that. Is she going to travel or something else? Or is she eating at, at really bad restaurants or something like that? But probably not. Hepatitis B, for herself, not really. Uh, I mean, unless that there's something else going on. I mean, if there's injection drug use or maybe something else going on. Now, for her child afterwards, sure. But for her right now, probably not. What about meningococcal vaccine? No, she's she's 38. Uh, doesn't sound like she's in a, a group that's going to get exposed to that. Um, what about HPV? No. No, she's pregnant, and they said remember to if you can delay it. There's not a rush to get this, and plus she's 38. So is it going to be effective or not? And that's going to be the, at this point, no, but it could be shared decision-making later, you know, um, after that she has delivered her child and hopefully doing fine. But um, at this point, no. Okay, move on to the second of three. This is our 52-year-old uh, account executive who uh, unfortunately is an alcoholic with liver disease. He doesn't have anything else fortunately going on. He had a tetanus booster about three years ago. And he says he never had measles, mumps, rubella, or chicken pox that he can remember, or vaccines that he can remember. So does he need Tdap? Interesting, isn't it? You could, just you know, so that you would um, give him some pertussis um, so you could consider giving it to him now or having him come back soon. Um, and, you know, he needs a TD booster, but most people now are just giving a Tdap every 10 years uh, unless there's an outbreak in an area. He's going to be around kids. He may have, I mean, we don't have a family history here, but if he's got children and maybe they can have grandkids or something, you know, that would certainly be another recommendation for a Tdap. So at this point, no, he's not due, um, I don't think. Let's see. No, no, no. Well, he had tetanus booster three years ago. So not yet, but I mean, you could argue that and you can give a Tdap at any point in time. So you could have that discussion and see what he wants to do. What about an MMR? Yes, sir. Yeah, you could offer him one of two things. You can check serology since he doesn't know, or you can just give him an MMR. Give him two-dose MMR and be done with it. What about varicella? That's interesting because the attack rate in populations is extremely high and it's uncommon to find people who have not been exposed. Although um, 
oh, now I'm going to blank on her name. Um, Barbara Walters, a few years ago, came down with chickenpox at the age of 80. And people were calling me going, don't you think that it's it's zoster, isn't it? You know, so and what are they treating her with and stuff like I know because I'm not treating her. So it can happen. It's very uncommon. Um, and this is one where that you might want to um, see what his VZV serology looks like. If he's not immune, then you can go ahead and give him varicella vaccine. The other thing you'll see is we get towards the bottom where this it can be, you know, what do you do with this um, when we start talking about zoster vaccine? What about flu? Yeah, you should get one. Everybody should get one annually until we get newer ones out, maybe that are more durable. Um, pneumococcal disease. What's in his history? Yes, 23 well. Yeah, he has liver disease. So again, he, he needs a dose of 23-valent, and then after he turns 65, he'll need a second dose. What about hepatitis A vaccine? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's got some liver disease. We hope it doesn't progress, but yeah, he should get hep A. What about hep B? Yes. Yeah, and you can argue three versus maybe save is two dose, but he definitely needs hepatitis B vaccine. Does he need meningococcal vaccine? Not really, but you can no. all. I mean, you know, is he going to be going, traveling anywhere? He's an account executive for an advertising agency. So if he's going to have travel to endemic areas, yeah, then I'd offer it. But in general, no. HPV vaccine? I, we'll just, no. I mean, he's, he's 52. He's probably not going to you know, get much out of that. We'd need a sexual history to know what's going on with that. But it, at this point, no. Um, but it's something to discuss maybe later on. What about shingles vaccine? And see, that's where it gets interesting because if he's not immune to varicella, then you vac just vaccinate him for varicella. Um, the chance of that, though, from my experience, has been it's really, really uncommon. So, you know, you could just go ahead and give him RZV as um, his shingle, well, two dose of that at, at time zero and then two to six months. Um, but it's, it's again, it's a decision to have, um, you know, it's a blood draw should turn around pretty quickly. If he's immune, then you won't have, you'll sleep better at night than if you give him Shingrix. Then to say, well, just go ahead and give him Shingrix. And I don't know, he's probably had, um, you know, um, chicken pox at some point. And the last lady, our 65-year-old lady who um, she says she had a case of chicken pox as a child. She has evidence of immunity to rubella and she's in good health. Does she need TD? Yes, she does. Yeah, it doesn't sound like she's had it, you know, and um, so she, I would give her Tdap to be honest. What about an MMR? Um, no, no. And the caveat with this is her age. People right. born 1957 and older generally are felt to be immune. They've been exposed. So she was born before 1957 and she doesn't really need it um, unless that there would be some issue. But she's in good health, so she shouldn't really need it. Varicella. No, she's no, she's a, okay. yeah, she had chicken pox. Flu, 
Yes. Yeah. Pneumococcal? Yes. Yes. She, because she's 65, she just gets one dose of pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, 23-valent vaccine. Um, Hep A? Nah, unless uh. she's going to travel someplace or whatever, like we discussed before. And same thing with Hep B. Um, and the same thing with meningococcal, realistically, she's not going to need that if she's not going to go anywhere. Um, HPV? No, <laughs> she's definitely a little old for that. Um, and I don't think anybody will pay for it anyway. What about shingles? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so with that, I um, thank you for your attention. Sorry for running slightly over. Thanks for participating.